When Richard asked uh, me to be a part of this sermon series, I was quite honestly pretty excited. But the closer it got to preaching this sermon, I got to be honest, I'm, I'm really not, uh, not excited about preaching this sermon. Um, ministry is not a job for me. God is not a part of my life. He is my life. And if you asked me to preach uh, once and only once and to preach my last sermon, well, let's just say you're not going to get it today because we'd be here for four or five hours. <laughs> so you might get a little preview. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd forgive us. Forgive us that we as Americans can go sit in a 90-minute movie and be entertained. But anything more than 60 minutes in a service and we lose our focus. Lord, over the next four weeks, challenge us. Inspire us and move us. Convict us and change us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I grew up on the mission field, and, and my grandparents live in Borger, Texas, which is a small town in the middle of nowhere, Panhandle, Texas. Uh, and, and that's where we would always come back in furlough. So really, the, the longest, most uh, consistent thing in my life is Borger, Texas. My grandparents, my granddad built their house from the ground up back in the days when, it was being, when Borger was being founded. And, and they've lived in the same house their entire life, uh, my entire life. And so that's the only thing that has never changed in my life. And so we'd come home and furlough there, and, and over the past probably 20 years, one of my uncles and aunts lives there as well, and my uncle's on staff at First Baptist Borger, and uh, that's where we would always go. There was a young man named Ryan Maxwell. The Maxwell family live in Borger. His dad uh, runs the, the funeral home there, and, and so they grew up, and he, their son, Ryan, Ryan Maxwell, was the same age as one of my cousins, David Dietz. And, and so Ryan was a young man that I saw as a young boy grow into a young man. And, and they were inseparable. Ryan was, was pretty much almost one of the Dietzes. And anytime I went home, there was Ryan. Ryan was a unique young man. He was probably five feet tall, and he sounded like Louis Armstrong. I kid you not. Uh, as he grew older and he got into worship, he, he sang like Louis Armstrong. Had a real raspy, but just real eccentric, unique voice, and, and he was just a ball of energy. He was a total goofball. Ryan was the kind of guy uh, that would do the stupidest things. I remember once he invited my cousin and all their friends out to eat, and he's like, you know, you guys are such good friends. I want to I treat you all to dinner. So he took them to Amarillo. They went into IHOP or someplace like that, and they sat down, and he's like, order whatever you want. And so they did. They ordered whatever they want. And then when they got done, he's like, man, was that a good meal? And they were like, yeah. And he's like, thank you all. You all are such good friends. And they're like, well, thanks. Thanks for lunch. And he goes, well, that's, no, no, don't worry about it. Let's run. And he took off and ran out of the restaurant. <laughs> Didn't pay the bill. He was also, I mean, he was just one of those kind of guys that, that everybody looked at like trouble. But he was so funny and he was such a personality that it was kind of trouble with a laugh, Right. Ryan uh, went through Borger High School. Ryan graduated and went to WT, I believe, for a semester. He kind of washed out, uh, didn't really suit him. 
So at semester, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he went home. He went back to Borger, Texas as an 18-year-old. And uh, he just kind of stayed up all night and slept all day. Didn't have a job, really. Uh, Everyone that knew Ryan was just kind of figured he was one of those college dropouts, one of those guys that kind of was having problems transitioning into adulthood and maturing. He uh, started dating a young lady at Borger High there, uh, and, and that was his life. And for all practical means and purposes, everybody just kind of thought that he was one of those kids that, that was just uh, not going to amount to much of anything. Well, in 2001... Ryan and Lindley, his girlfriend, were driving to Amarillo to go to a Carmen concert, and uh, of all things, and had a head-on collision, and they both died instantly. And the two drivers of the other car died instantly. Now, the state, state troopers since then told their parents when they arrived on the scene, uh, head-on collisions like that that involve teenagers, they, there's always alcohol involved. So they were surveying the scene, looking for bottles of alcohol, and they didn't find any. One thing they did find, though, were eight Bibles from Ryan Maxwell's truck. Eight Bibles on the side of the street. As they began to uh, look into Ryan's life, my uncle, who was going to be one of the pastors that preached the funeral out of five, that came to preach Ryan's funeral, Uh, they started going through these Bibles, and they found several more in his room. And one of the things they found was that out of all of Ryan Maxwell's Bibles, they were all covered from cover to cover. They were covered with notes. And Ryan, what he was doing was he would get home from being out, hanging out with the high school students at 10 or whatever when they all had to go home and go to bed. And he'd stay up till 2 or 3 in the morning, and everybody thought he was just goofing off, but it turns out what Ryan was doing was digging into the Word. And he was reading the word, and he was taking notes, and he filled eight Bibles cover to cover with notes. There were no margins left. Turns out that that while Ryan, by human standards, was a college dropout and pretty much a bum, turns out that the young man was just falling in love with Jesus. First Baptist Borger is a fairly large Baptist church, but as most of Borger... Uh, has declined in numbers of people that live there, so have the church's numbers, obviously. They have a sanctuary that seats about 1,500 people, a big balcony, and and it's a beautiful sanctuary. I grew up in that sanctuary, Um, but I've never seen it full. And Kim and I got the call uh, the day they had the head-on collision, so we drove out to Borger, and and when we went to the funeral, uh, it was packed. And, and for a church that I have never in my life seen full, the sanctuary was packed. In fact, there were so many people that they had to open up an overflow room. So the church seats about 1,500 people, which I've never seen in that church. But at Ryan's funeral, over 2,000 people showed up for a 19-year-old's funeral. When they got the registry books of people who had signed in, there were over 3,000 people signed into the registry books. Like I said, there were five pastors at Ryan's funeral because they all wanted to be there, including the likes of Matt Chandler and people of the such at Ryan and Lindley's funeral. I'll never forget that funeral because we, we got there early, and yet we still had to sit in the balcony 
uh, and, and it was just packed. And the pastor of First Baptist Church at the time, First Baptist Church was very much a traditional Baptist church, and he was very much a traditional Baptist guy. I mean, he had the Baptist comb over, <laughs> the suit. He had it all. And, um, and I'll never forget what happened because uh, as you walked in and sat down, they had a recording of Ryan Maxwell and David, my cousin's songs playing, worship that they had recorded. And, uh, and you walk in, you sat down, listen to that. And then they started the funeral and they started at the time I can only imagine was a real popular song had just come out and uh, Ryan's mom had requested that song. So they started singing that song and Ryan's mom sitting on the front row stands up and just starts worshiping, raises her hands. And the pastor of First Baptist Church, the look on his face of sheer terror <laughs> because things were getting out of control. Because no sooner had Ryan's mom stood up and everybody stood up and worshiped God. It was amazing. My Uncle Andy stood up to preach his one of the five sermons or whatever at the funeral, and he said, I got to stop, and I just I have to ask... If you're in the room today and you are saved in part due to Ryan Maxwell's life, I'd like to ask you to stand. And uh, I think I lost count at about 40, 50 people in the room had stood. In fact, later on, looking at the numbers, um, there were 60 people that had stood in the room. Um, seven people got saved at the funeral. Found out that, that that week that he had died earlier, he had gone and visited some prison as a 19-year-old. He took it upon himself to go to some prison, and he preached to the prisoners, and 12 prisoners got, got saved. Turns out that this loser of a kid, by human standards, was a giant amongst men. A giant amongst men. He was an interesting guy. Anyways, on his, on his uh, tombstone, I think we've got a picture up here. This is what it says. Ryan James Maxwell, March 22nd, 1982 to March 3rd, 2001. And then they have a quote on there that they found in the margins of one of his Bibles that he had written down. So it was one of his quotes. It said, we serve the God of the universe. Dream. Why not? I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. As you drove from Borger to the gravesite, it's about five miles, and the processional was five miles long. Once you got to the gravesite, we had to wait 45 minutes for the cars to get to the gravesite, for all everyone to get there. That's how, how long the processional was to his gravesite. And it was just a testimony to me in a large way as to the impact that God wants to have through us and in large and, and in many ways, we fail to, to realize what God is doing in our lives and what he has planned to do. And also, often, we look at the outward appearance of things. And in every aspect, the outward appearance of who Ryan was was just a human failure. But spiritually speaking, he had, he had lived a full life. And God had taken him to heaven because his job in, my, in Ryan Maxwell was done. And he had accomplished more in 19 years of life, spiritually speaking, than many of us will accomplish in 80 years of life for the kingdom of God. We serve the God of the universe. Dream. 
Why not? You know, last week, uh, or the week before, I don't know, it all gets blurry to me. Uh, we, we had the confirmands come in. Was that last week? Confirmands. I'm still waiting for the confirmands to lift the big rock. I challenge them every year. The plastic one that sits here, but no one will take me up on it. Um, probably because Cindy threatens them within an inch of their life. But it was confirmation Sunday, and they raise their knees and everything. And, and one of the things that the, we have the confirmands do every year is they write little reports on individuals who, who made an impact on the kingdom of God. And one of the reports was on John Wesley, who we claim as the founder of our church. In fact, John Wesley can be claimed as the founder of many denominations, the United Methodist Church, the Wesleyan Church, and many more. John Wesley, as a college student at Oxford with his brother Charles Wesley, started a club called the Holiness, or Holy Club? Holy Club. That sounds kind of weird if you say it real fast. Holy Club. Um, That's pretty good. Anyways, they started this club as college students. How pretentious of the day for these college students to think that they could start a club that would change things spiritually and change the way the church was functioning. Us older folks, and I can say that now because yesterday was my birthday, so I can say that of college students. Us older folks tend to look at, at young people and the way that they try to bring change in the church and we tend to stick our nose up in the air at it. But the reality of it is, is that every great revival is started with youth or college-age students, and that's one of the reasons why. Because they dare to dream that they can change things and have an impact on the world. And John and Charles Wesley were some of those that dared to dream that they should do things differently than the status quo. And so they started this club, and they started Methodism in a way to, to dive into holiness. And many of the people in that club went on to make huge impacts on the kingdom of God. John Wesley obviously started, many of the denominations that are alive today can trace the roots back to John Wesley and that time when he was in college. Many of the hymns that are in our hymn books today were written by Charles Wesley, who led and pioneered a realm of, of worshiping that worship leaders today still look back to Charles Wesley and some of the stuff he's done and take inspiration from that. Another great man that was a part of that club was a man named George Whitfield, who came from poverty. He was a subservient guy at Oxford, meaning he had to carry older guys' books, write papers for them and whatnot, because his family could not afford for him to be at Oxford, so he got scholarship, and he had to be subservient to the guys there. John West, or George Whitfield became a part of the Holy Club, and George Whitfield, who in human standards was someone who would never achieve anything, someone by church's standards was a sinner because he loved the arts and theater, which at the time, theater was considered a sin. It was a faux pas, the church and Christians not mixing the theater. George Whitfield loved the theater. George Whitfield challenged the status quo, and because of who he was and his dream and allowing God to give him dreams, George Whitfield became one of the greatest evangelists of all time. In fact, thanks to George Whitfield, many of us in this room, well, all of us in this room sitting here today can attribute our church and our faith back to George Whitfield because without John Wesley and George Whitfield, the United States would not be where it is today spiritually. George Whitfield was highly influential in the greatest, in, in the first great awakening in this country. George Whitfield back in the 1700s would have crowds of 20, 30,000 people show up to hear him preach. That's the equivalent of the amount of people that go and watch a Mavericks game. Can you imagine a man that could preach to 20,000 
people without a sound system and still be heard? They know this is true because Ben Franklin at one point in time was in so in awe of George Whitchfield's sermons that he went one time and he had heard about this evangelist from England that was coming to the States and he was going to talk and that the people would say tens of thousands of people show up to his outdoor sermons, which by the way was also another faux pas, the outdoor preaching. It should be done in a church, but George Whitfield would do it outside because he couldn't fit everyone in the church. So Benjamin Franklin showed up and what he did is he showed up and as George Whitfield started preaching, he calculated, he walked away from George Whitfield in, in, in the city. He walked as far as he could until he could not hear George Whitfield anymore. And he walked a certain amount of distance. And he took that distance and he, he calculated two square feet per person that was standing listening. And he took the distance and he averaged out a semicircle from where George Whitfield was. And he averaged out how many two cubic feet uh, of ground there was. And he calculated that sure enough, about 27,000 people could hear George Whitfield preaching. George Whitfield was notorious for including the theatrical in his arts. In fact, one of his most popular sermons was when he was talking about being given new birth in Christ. And it is said that he actually acted out like a woman that was pregnant on stage in his sermon and giving birth. He was an eccentric, crazy guy that the church kind of frowned upon. But he started in a group with a bunch of college students that dared to be different, that dreamed larger than the status quo, that allowed God to inspire them to go beyond the norm. And in large, due to their life, the contemporary church around the world today exists. If you had asked me three years ago, if this church could change an entire nation for God, I would have thought, wow, pie in the sky. Yeah, that'd be awesome, but realistically, no. But the reality of it is, is that we serve the God of the universe. We should dream, and we should not only dream, we should dream big. If I had one sermon to preach, it would be this. That you and I need to quit dreaming insignificant dreams and we need to allow the God of the universe to give us God-sized dreams. I heard a preacher the other day on TV, I won't mention his name, but he said this in his sermon. He said, you do your best and God will do the rest. And I dare to disagree. God does not want your best. God does not want to become and be a part of your plan for life. God wants to be the plan of your life. God does not need your best. In fact, he needs nothing but total surrender from you. That is what he requires. That I not live, yet it be Christ who lives in me. That I would take up my cross daily. That I would die to self. And that Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, would come and live in and through me. God longs to give me dreams that are so big that they would blow my mind. 
So much so that God can't give me the dream for my life that he has for my life in one lump sum because if he did, it would be unfathomable to me. God rather wants me to commit my life to him, to lay my life down, to say, God, have all of me and realize your dreams through me. And when we do such a thing, God will do things that will blow our minds. Driving home from Ryan Maxwell's funeral, something happened in me. As someone who's in ministry... I had a lot of dreams. I wanted to make an impact on the kingdom of God. I can remember praying when I was in college, God, let me be the next Billy Graham. And I'm okay with not reaching thousands to Christ. I just want to be available to you if that's what you want. And driving home from Ryan Maxwell's funeral, something clicked in me because something was wrong. Because I was living a religion. I was living a tradition. I was living as I saw modeled for me. And there was something inside of me that just broke that day. And I said, God, if I died today, would I have made as much impact on your kingdom as this 19-year-old who did everything wrong? And it started a, a real life change for me. About a year later, Kim and I left the church. And I went through two years of deep soul searching. Because what I had known prior to that was no longer good enough. And I finally came to a, part where, a point where I just said, God, you know, if, if Christianity is what I know then I'm no different than the world that is lost, struggling with sin. The only difference is I feel guilty about it and come to church every week. But I still live defeated. I still live convicted. I live with guilt. And I'm not making the impact I want to make for your kingdom. Because, Lord, you know I want to be the kind of minister that does amazing things. And, and I just, you know, I, I burnt out. And I said, God, I'm done. I am done. And I opened the Bible, which you should never do, but I said, God, you better speak, and you better speak now, because I'm done. Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. I said, all right, God. You want to act? You want to work in me that I would act according to your good purpose? Go for it, because I'm done. And it was as if God said to me, finally, Because your best is not good enough, Jeff. I never asked for your best. When you are weak, I am strong. What I want is a vessel that I can put my son and my Holy Spirit inside of, and I can do good works that bring glory to me. And you get to be along for the joyride. Finally, be done. I said, good, because I am. And a transformation began in me. 
And don't get me wrong, I've been raised in a pastor's home. My dad was a missionary. I knew the Bible. I knew, I knew more theology. I had already been to seminary classes before I graduated from high school because my dad made me go sit through them. I knew theology. I knew some doctrine. I, I'd been there, done that. But one thing I did not understand was that I was trying to ask God to come and give his stamp of approval on my plans rather than giving my stamp of approval over to him and saying, God, do what you plan in me, and I'm good with whatever. And that transformation began in me. And I said, God, I want to be like Ryan Maxwell, who, yes, had his shortcomings, yes, was a sinner, but your grace was sufficient for him, and you used him in mighty ways. God, create in me a, a contrite spirit, Create in me a, a heart that is submitted and surrendered to you that you would use me in ways that I could never dream or fathom. And out of that two-year desert, God brought us here. And after getting home from Yim Tour, because I was here a week, went on Yim Tour with youth and came home, and Richard said, oh, and by the way, yeah, you're the missions guy. Okay. And so Steve Mickler and I just kind of sat down and said, all right, this is missions. What do we want to do? And so I began praying, and God began to give Steve and I a dream. It was a crazy dream. It was a dream that I've never seen a church strive for. But Steve and I were like, you know what? We serve the living God of the universe. Let's dream, and let's dream big. Let's dream that every member of our church go on a mission trip in the next 10 years so that their heart would be broken for your lost, Lord, so that their eyes would be open to the work you were doing around the globe, that it would change us as a church, that it would change our heart and our mindset, that it would radically challenge us. That was a short-term vision. One of the long-term dreams we had was that we'd go into an unreached nation. One of the even longer dreams we had was that we'd be a major playing cha- player in changing that nation for Christ. How we were going to realize that? We weren't. But we knew that if God wanted to, he could. And thus, you've heard the story of Chiv walking into my office. Oh, that we would be a church like the Holy Club who are ignorant in what we do because because we really don't know how we're going to do what God wants to do. But the reality of it is, is it doesn't matter because we realize that we don't do it. It is God who does it in us. That we would be a church with reckless abandon that would just say, you know what, the status quo is no longer good enough. We want to be submitted and surrendered to the God of the universe, and we want to dream, and we want to dream big. God, give us your dreams. Give us God-sized dreams, dreams so large that when you fulfill them, there is no way that we can take credit because there is no way we could have done it on our own. 
Kim and I were laying in, in bed the other morning, and, and I don't know how, but we got to talking about our, essentially our bucket list, if you've seen the movie. You know, what are all those things you would like to do before you've died or whatever? And, and honestly, I was stricken with fear because I, I started thinking, hey, going down my bucket list that I'd had my whole life, you know, these are things I wanted to do. And suddenly I was stricken with fear because I realized they've all happened. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no. God, are you getting ready to take me home? Are you going to leave Kim here alone with the three boys? Oh, Lord, no. (laughs) And then the fear turned into just crying. I don't know if she knew I was crying in bed because it was dark. I was crying. Because just eight years ago, I was at a place where I was like, God, I'm done. And, and in eight years, God has fulfilled every dream I've ever had. How many churches can say that they've gone into an unreached nation and that they've led hundreds to the Lord? that a church was started. And it was no work of their own because because God is moving so fast. He is out in front of us and we're trying to play catch up with God. How many churches go to their DS and their bishop and go, this is what's God doing. How do we keep up? And they go, we'll get back to you on that one. Let us know what you do. Very few. How many people can can stand before a church and preach their one sermon and say, I've been to a place where they've never heard the name of Jesus Christ. And now they're saved and they're leading each other to the Lord. I can't. And not because of anything that I did. In fact, God's never let me go back. I've tried three times. And I think the reason he's not let me go back is because God wants me to know that it's not me. Church, we serve the living God. And he has aspirations for your life that are grander than your own aspirations for your own life. Ryan's tombstone says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we use that verse to try to get God to enable us to do the things we want to do. But the reality of it is, is that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, meaning we can fulfill all of God's dreams because his Holy Spirit will fulfill them in and through us if we'll just make ourselves available. Are you sitting here this morning about to go through a divorce? Is your marriage falling apart? Have you been divorced and you just think that you're damaged goods? And you're sitting there saying, God, come and fix this. Are you struggling with addiction and you're saying, God, come and fix this? Let me me suggest, for example, that rather than saying, God, come and fix me, come and change my situation, that you say, God, here is my situation, and I know it's ugly to you, but I give it all to you anyways. Because if you would do that, you'd be amazed at what God would do.
we celebrated Laura Smyre's birthday last night. And her husband struggled with addiction. You've seen his video. He's married to a beautiful 20-year-old today. <laughs> but I love Scott's testimony. You know why? Because Scott looks at his addiction and he doesn't go, man, that was a dark point in my life. I mean, sure, I think given the option, he wouldn't go through it again. But he can look back on it and, and understand that God is using his weakness to impact and change the lives of others going through the same thing. And when he was walking through it, I guarantee you, Scott was praying, God, if you're real, stop this mess. Take it away from me. But the reality of it is, is God let him walk through it because God is using it today to change the lives of others. Dream big, church. Let's dream big. We serve the God of the universe. He died for our imperfection. He will use our imperfection. The Bible puts it this way, what Satan meant for evil, he will use for good. If I had to dream one sermon, it would be that. Stop living your dreams and give your life to God and allow him to live his dreams through you because they are abundantly more than you could ever dream or imagine and they're abundantly better than your dreams will ever measure up to be. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be here. I pray that you would come, Holy Spirit, and that you would move amongst our body today, that you would grab a hold of our hearts, that you grab a hold of our minds, that you would challenge us. God, strip us of ourselves and put in, 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 in its place your Holy Spirit. Give us your dreams, your desires, that we would be a church, a body of believers who live for you and you alone. And that your aspirations, your goals would be manifest and accomplished through us via your Holy Spirit. And that when all of those around us see us, they would not say, wow, there is a godly man or there is a godly woman. But they would say, wow, I have experienced God in their presence. Lord, be the air that we breathe. Lord, only you can satisfy our innermost desires. You take what is wrong and broken inside us and you make it good and you fix it. Lord, that we would be your people, a royal priesthood called out of the darkness and into the light, as First Peter says. A holy nation. Use us, God, to fulfill your purposes. In Jesus' name I pray.